ask you to grab God's word and uh, open up to the book of 1 Samuel as we begin a first uh, sermon in a new series that we've entitled Shattered. So let's turn there. showed we're going to be in a series that we've entitled Shattered uh, with the subtitle When Life Goes to Pieces. And we're going to be looking at that theme uh, through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And I want you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel this morning. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you this morning, turn in the uh, pew Bible that's found in the pew rack in front of you to page 225. Page 225. And we're going to spend the good portion of our fall and early winter uh, focused in on this theme uh, of shattered, looking at lives that, that for whatever reason, ha- had gone to pieces, where things had not turned out the way maybe they had expected them uh, to do. And we're going to devote our time and attention looking at some of the most heartbreaking and difficult passages about people in all the lives of Scripture. You see, First Samuel takes place, if you're unaware, it takes place during a difficult time for the nation of Israel. God's chosen people uh, were being led by a group of judges. They didn't have a king, they didn't have a president, they didn't have a ruler uh, that they could look to and say, uh, that's our guy or that's our gal. They were led by uh, these groups of judges. And we know some of those judges' names like Gideon, Samson, uh, Deborah. Uh, These were judges that led during periods of time. But this was uh, a couple hundred years of time where the people of Israel found themselves very different than every other nation. Uh, We know that they did have a ruler. They did have a king. His name was God. God had announced to them that he was going to be their ruler and king. But but during that time, many Israelites were not uh, content with that. They wanted to be like other countries. They wanted to be like other nations that surrounded them, who had a king, who had a general, who had a ruler uh, that led the people. And so during this time, while there were judges who led the nation of Israel, uh, we are told at the end of the book of Judges, that this was a time where everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It doesn't sound much different than in our day today, where everybody is able to discern or be able to to define what truth is and what's right for them. And and if it's right for them, then it must be right. And and as a result of that, all kinds of chaos and heartbreak uh, take place. And as we look at that, you may ask the question this morning, why would we focus our time and attention? We're going to be here till the first part of the month of December. Why would we devote so much time to such a a broken and and messy book of the Bible? Well, there are three reasons that I want to remind us of uh, this morning. I want to remind us that uh, the reason why we look at at the book of 1 Samuel, number one, it's in the Bible, and we're told to look at all of Scripture, not just the pretty precious moments parts of the Bible, but also the difficult ones, the ones that maybe are hard to preach, are hard to explain, are are hard to, to work through. And so this is a part of the Scriptures, and we are dedicated to preaching the Scriptures. But more specifically, why 1 Samuel, and why now? Because 1 Samuel is a heartbreaking book of broken lives. Why would we study it? Number one, it reminds us that we're all broken. We are all broken. Maybe you came in today wearing your best clothes, looking good, and, and, and you're thinking, you know what, hey, I'm, I'm doing pretty well right now. I want to remind you this morning, no matter where you're at, if you were born of a mom and dad in the human race, you're a broken individual. You're broken. I'm broken. We have issues. We have idiosyncrasies that cause us to have all kinds of trouble. Some of us have, have made decisions and, and, and had things that have impacted our lives in a, in a negative way. And because of that, we walk around as broken people. And we need to recognize that this morning some of the best people that God had uh, working in his ministry were very broken and, and flawed people. And so we need to recognize that. Number two, we need to recognize that each time we read one of these stories, these ugly stories, these messy, shattered lives that we will learn and and read about, it continually reminds us. First Samuel is a continual reminder that God is the answer to our problems. 
And we need to recognize this morning that more money isn't going to fix your problems. A new spouse isn't going to fix your problems. Obedient children aren't going to fix your problems. That new promotion, that new car, that new house, those new clothes, none of that will take care of the problem. Only God through Jesus Christ can. And so 1 Sam is going to constantly remind us that if we try to fix our lives on our own, we're going to fail. And it's a constant, continual reminder of that truth this morning. Number three, it's a reminder for us. We're going to learn and we're going to see uh, people make very sinful and, and just plain bad decisions throughout this uh, book, throughout this series. And it's a reminder for us not to make those same mistakes. Some of us may be living some of the very same situations that are going on in 1 Samuel. And we need to be reminded of what we ought not to be involved in. Maybe decisions we shouldn't be making. And to turn to God and seek his wisdom instead of trying to pursue uh, our own thinking and our own wisdom to address those particular situations. And so each week, we're going to deal with a shattered issue. This week, we're going to address shattered expectations. Next week, we're going to look at shattered parenting. A week after that, we're going to look at shattered religion. And uh, we're going to learn how God takes that which is shattered, that which is messed up and makes masterpieces out of it. So let's turn our attention to 1 Samuel this morning, chapter 1. I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. As you hear me butcher the first set of names in the book, if there's ever a fear of, uh, of, of preachers, it's, it's about now because every time I, I look at these names, I say them a different way than I did the time before. So have, uh, have grace on your pastor as I read through these. 1 Samuel chapter 1, we're going to go through verse 20. There was a certain man from Ramathame, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elahu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraite. He had two wives. The name of one uh, was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. Uh, Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. And on the day Elkanah uh, sacrificed, he would give uh, portions to Peniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. And as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go about being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him 
from the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you as a broken and, and flawed people. And we recognize because of our brokenness, because of our sins and our frailties as humanity, that in this world we're going to have trouble. In this world we're, we're going to have heartbreak. And so, Lord, as we look at our, our lives and as we look at the things that we've hoped for that maybe haven't come to fruition, I pray that we would be like Hannah, who was faithful, Hannah who was patient, Hannah who even amidst uh, the scoffing of a, of a rival sought to honor you. And so, Lord, wherever we, we may be struggling, whatever unmet expectations we may have or, or those that have been shattered as a result of circumstances in life, that we would remain faithful and steadfast as Hannah did. Now, Lord, speak through your servant today as you have so many times before. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Picture with me for a moment a little girl, maybe eight or nine years of age, beautiful little girl, and she's out and, and she's with some friends and, and they're out in the hill country of, of, of a beautiful land and they're talking. They're talking about what girls do. They're talking about getting married. They're talking about meeting Mr. Right. They're talking about falling in love. I wonder if Hannah was one day talking with her friends when she began to share about what she was looking forward to because that's what young girls many times do. They talk about the future. They talk about the homes that, that they look forward to making. They, they look forward to the, uh, the opportunity of raising children and, and the joy that comes with uh, being a part of a growing family. I wonder if Hannah had an expectation of what her husband was going to be like what married life would be like, to be the apple of, of his eye, uh, to, to walk into a room only to see her husband's heart and, and, and the face light up with joy. Uh, there's my girl. I wonder if she wondered what it would be like to hold that newborn baby, uh, that cooing baby, that baby that, that was a gift from God for, for her to have and to hold, for her uh, to be able to raise in the fear and admonition of the Lord Hannah, no doubt, while we are cultures away, while we are centuries away from that young girl, no doubt she had expectations as many of us do. An expectation that when, when we grow older, that life will, will go as the fairy tale says, where everybody lives happily ever after. But when we come to books like 1 Samuel, we come to places that we learn that life is not a fairy tale. That everything doesn't turn out all nice. That, that we don't, we're not able to wrap our lives into this beautiful package with beautiful wrapping, with a great beautiful bow that's tied to the top of it as if just kind of touching off the final elements of, of life, saying everything now is perfect. Because when we look at Hannah's life, we see things didn't go as she probably would have dreamed as a little girl. We learn that life is going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be filled with jealousy and rivalry. It's going to be filled with uh, a sense of, of something always lacking from her life. And as we look at Hannah's life, we come to what I would like to do as a church, and that is be reminded of, a, of an important truth as we begin this series. And it's an easy one. It doesn't take any heavy Hebrew exposition, if you will, of any important text. Here's the one that everyone, if you've lived on this earth long enough, you will know that, that if we're going to get through shattered expectations as Hannah did, we need to remember that life can be very frustrating. Amen? It can be frustrating. No one, including God, no one guarantees that this life is going to be easy. Uh, the Bible says that man is born, and that's men and women alike, are born to troubles as sparks fly upward. So as you start that fire and you see the, the sparks and the smoke heading up uh, to the sky, just as that happens every time you light a fire, so your life is given to troubles. In this world, we're going to have times where we're going to be frustrated, where we're going to be broken, where things we expected to happen will not take place. In fact, the very things that we expected, the very opposite is going to take place. And we see that in the life of Hannah. 
Let's face it, Hannah early in her life was dreaming, was expecting about how life was going to end up. And only to find out those expectations and dreams, not, not just unmet, but shattered. I mean, almost like someone was playing a cruel joke on her. And some of you this morning find yourself sitting in Hannah's position. Maybe not struggling in the same way Hannah did, but maybe some of you right now are sitting in, in this seat and you're, you're thinking about that, those days, those days of old where you dreamed about a marriage that was filled with romance. It was filled with commitment. And it's been maybe shattered uh, because you haven't found that certain someone. Or maybe you're in a marriage, and that marriage that you hoped would be so great and so wonderful, the answer to all of, of your pains and sorrows is filled with coldness, betrayal, anger, and maybe abuse. So others of you have dreamed, and you remember the days of college, looking back and, and thinking about the joy of that career, the career that was going to give you a purpose in life, that where you were going to change the world. You were going to make all sorts of money and, and have an opportunity to be stretched in ways you never thought possible, only to find yourselves now in a dead-end job that's going nowhere and paying very little. How about the student who works all, all night long getting those grades that that they need so that they can fill out the, the paperwork to apply to a school, the school that they want to go to, the school that they believe God has, has directed them to go to, only to find out through the mail that they have not been chosen as one of the students. What about you parents? I mean, what parent doesn't look to the great days ahead as you hold that newborn baby for the first time in the hospital they're all going to be presidents. They're all going to be the great ballet dancers. They're all going to be the great major league baseball players. I mean, we've got great dreams for our kids, great expectations, only to find out that as time has gone, we've, we've got a child that, that makes us want to pull our hair out if we have it. Or maybe a child that is struggling so deeply maybe with social issues, maybe with medical issues, and, and, and the things, the bright future that you had uh, for that child, now you're just hoping that you can just get through life, maybe have a relationship with them. Or how about you, those who have, have had plans of a bright future, ideas of what retirement might look like, ideas of, uh, of what it may mean in a year or two, only have to wrestle with prognosis like that of cancer or some other debilitating disease, some medical issue that came out of nowhere, where you expected maybe a long life with a spouse, and now that may be up in, in question, or maybe even worse, an untimely death or sudden loss of someone you love, something you weren't expecting. Whatever our struggle is, we as human beings expect things. The Bible doesn't talk about that all that much. It doesn't talk about that, that we should be dreaming or expecting, but, but I got to believe it's a part of God's will for us because he gave us the ability to do it. And, and so as long as it stays within some level of, of real honesty to who we are, dreaming and expecting things isn't all that bad. And and the things that Hannah was dreaming about, the things maybe you're dreaming or, or hoping will come to fruition, probably aren't all that bad. They may be incredibly noble things, but what are we to do with those things when they're shattered, when they're destroyed, when they don't turn out the way that we want them to? We have one of two options. It has been said that crisis tends to move us in one of two ways. We're moved towards God or we're moved towards bitterness. And the question this morning, in your shattered expectations, are you being moved towards God or are you being moved towards bitterness? You see, we have in this world times that are incredibly frustrating. Write that down in your outlines. We've got to remember that. Life is going to be frustrating. And the question is, what are we going to do when those frustrating times come? So let's understand what Hannah did. Let's understand a little bit about what was going on in her life. So this little girl that no doubt dreamed and, and expected great things in her adult life, what went wrong? Well, I want you to notice frustrating times come when we feel empty. Write that down this morning. When we feel empty. In verses 1 and 2, we are told some basic information about, 
Elkanah, her husband, the man she was dreaming about marrying one day. And we are told in in verse 2, the first frustrating problem, he had two wives. We'll get to that in a moment. That's a biggie. The women are all agreeing with that. Men, don't say a word. And notice we're told that one was Hannah and the other Peniah. Now, we are told then that one had children, but Hannah didn't. Barrenness is the first problem that Hannah faces. Even before the second wife is introduced, barrenness was something that Hannah was going to have to overcome. She had no children, and to be barren, both now and then, is something, listen, you never celebrate. Nobody ever celebrates being barren. I don't know of any woman that has held a barren party. Yay, I'm so excited. I'm going to invite my friends and family. I can't have kids. Let's face it, being barren is not fun. It is something that that is a reminder for the woman that's struggling with it that something's wrong, that things aren't working as they should. Now remember, centuries ago, there's no medical uh, advice that can come, no procedure that could explain this barrenness. Uh, This is something, no doubt, that, that Hannah would have to come to realize, listen, after failed attempts upon a failed attempt, Think of the frustration. Think of the emptiness. There's no, there's no diagnosis. I'm sorry, but, but something in your, in your reproductive organs isn't working quite right. We've figured it out, and, and here's the bad news. She doesn't get any of that. There's nothing that says that she can have kids, that there's any symptom that says there's a problem. The Bible says the Lord closed her womb. She's not having kids. And so failed attempt upon failed attempt, the hope, that something was going to take place, she is left empty. And likewise, when when we have expectations of something taking place, whether in our marriage or in our work life or in our family life or, or in our personal life, whatever it is, when it doesn't happen, we are left empty handed. And Hannah is at that place as well. So year after year goes by. This isn't something she deals with for, for a couple days. This is a problem that she deals with year after year. She's left empty-handed. Notice this uh, issue of of having shattered expectations will leave you exasperated. It wasn't bad enough that she was left without children, but her husband goes and does something stupid. Now, yes, it was culturally okay. There's no way we can get around it. It was culturally okay. Uh, for a man to take a second wife. It was never affirmed or prescribed in Scripture from the beginning. God has planned and God has willed and God has ordained that a marriage relationship is to happen between one man and one woman for a lifetime. He speaks about it. Jesus speaks about that in Matthew 19, speaking to the issue of divorce, talking about the permanency uh, of marriage. But in the times of the Old Testament, God Uh, overlooked sins of ignorance, both of great men like Abraham and now one of Elkanah. So her husband does what is culturally okay for the time, but against God's divine order. And listen, uh, we we disputed this as a preaching team with the teaching pastors of the campuses. Was, Was Elkanah a good husband? He worshiped God. It says that he loved his wife. Let me tell you something. If you ever take on a second wife, you're never a good husband. Okay? Yeah, he, he may have gotten some good marks in some areas, but he had blown it in a, in a big area. He had missed it. So he takes a second wife. Now, this is where the writer of Samuel gives us some information we need to be aware of. Notice that when he says in verse 2, he had two wives... In Old Testament, in Hebrew writing, any time you see something where there are two things or more are going to be communicated about, the one that is listed first is a sign of prominence and also a sign of, in in many ways, chronological order. So Hannah is the first wife. 
Notice he says that he had two wives. The one was Hannah. That was his first wife. And then the second wife, Peniah, she, she was second. Now, now, what does that mean? Why is that so important? Talk about shattered expectations. You, you marry a guy, and you have the expectation you're going to live happily ever after, that everything is going to turn out well. And then month after month, you, you show yourself not to be able to conceive of a child. And so the husband makes a decision. The husband says, okay, picture with me for a moment how this conversation went. They're at the, di- they're at the dinner table, and uh, Elkanah clears his, his throat. <clears throat> uh, Hannah, we've got to talk to you about something. We haven't been successful in having a kid, and having kids are important to me. And uh, I've come up with an idea. Um, I want to introduce you to my new wife. And she's going to live with us, and, and, uh, and she's going to be my wife. And you know all that that means, because that's going to go over well with a spouse. And, and we're going to try to have kids because... It isn't happening with you. Do you think Hannah was frustrated? Do you think she was brokenhearted? Oh my goodness. The heartbreak. And, and this is a reminder for, for many of us, maybe, you know, the man that's out there right now, maybe not struggling with barrenness, but this is what shattered expectations do. They, they destroy us. But it's as if someone's got a sense of humor. The, the moment that Paniah enters the picture, she, her name's not Paniah, her name is Myrtle, Fertile Myrtle. She starts, I, I don't mean to be funny, but man, there's, there's, a, there's a level of humor to all of this. And kids just start flocking. One after another. Notice in the text later on in the text, I believe it's verse, uh, let's see here, verse 4. That he gives to Benaiah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. I mean, there's a multitude of them. And so think about the, just the exasperation Hannah must be facing. Number one, the exasperation that I can't have a kid. It starts there. Number two, exasperation that uh, she, she has now arrived. There's another woman in her husband's life. Exasperation number three, she has a kid. Four, kid. Five, kid. Six, kid. And so on. Every cry of a baby. Every time that she would see Peniel holding a child. Every time she would see her husband, Elkanah, Uh, playing with one of his children was a reminder that she's a failure. And some of us are walking around today, and everywhere we look, everywhere we go, is a reminder that our lives are utter failures, that everything we expected has been thrown out the door. And as if it couldn't get any worse, in verse 7 we are told that Paniah starts mocking Hannah. It wasn't good enough. Listen, it wasn't good enough that she had all the children. It wasn't good enough that that she had uh, been able to do something with her husband that Hannah couldn't with the same man. It wasn't enough, and so she began to mock her incessantly. The idea here is literally to do something to bring someone to wrath. She's got an enemy. It starts out with the small stuff, maybe passive aggressiveness on Paniah's part. And then the incessant talking of the joy of kids becomes more overt and the rude comments begin to come. And quite frankly, she probably just said, you know, something's wrong with you, woman. You're cursed by God. Look at me. I'm being blessed by God with these children. God has cursed you. You've done something wrong. The irony of all of it is that Hannah, a woman who is fit to be a mother, has no children. And Paniah, a woman who seems to be unkind and, and unsympathetic, is able to have all the kids she wants. Isn't that what happens when we see our unmet and shattered expectations? We look around and the pagans have everything they could ask for. I mean, let's really be honest. We work our tails off and we serve God and we honor him. We give back to the Lord. We do all of that. And it seems as if we can't catch a break. And, and the people that don't go to church, the people that don't love Jesus, the people that live in total contradiction of the scriptures, man, they've got everything going for them, right? 
Maybe you're living in a different world than I am. And we're left empty-handed. This leads us to a place of exhaustion. In verse 7, we are told this happened year after year after year. There's something exhausting, listen, about the issue of infertility. Every month, if you've ever struggled with infertility, you know this to be true. Every month, there's an expectation that something good is going to happen. And every month, your heart is broken. Well, maybe next month it will happen. I wonder if Hannah on her knees begged her husband, give me one more month. One more month, it will happen. I promise you, I know it's going to happen. It feels different than it ever did before. Please give me one more chance. The exhaustion that must come, the new heartbreak, the emotional toil. You see, when shattered expectations come, we feel left, we, le we are left empty, exasperated, and exhausted. And that's what Hannah felt. What do we do? What are we to go about doing? Well, we need to be careful of, a, of something that we are so prone to do, and that is we need to be careful to resist the temptation to fix things. So your life isn't what you want it to be. The human expression is right away, I need to fix it. I need to right this wrong. I need to make sure that I address this situation with my own hands. Listen, as human beings, we are prone to fix our problems. We figure if we try hard enough, throw enough money and time and energy at something, then it will change. If we just take things into our own hands. The problem is, is when we try to fix things that are in God's hands, a couple things take place. Number one, we always fall short of addressing the problem. We always fall short of addressing the problem. Enter Elkanah, the husband. He seems to be a good man. Yes, he has two wives, but he seemingly loves God, he worships God, and he loves Hannah. And his attempts to alleviate the pain seemingly fall on deaf ears. So let's look at his first try. What does he do? My wife is barren. She can't have children. She's troubled. She's troubled so much. Notice in verse 8, I'm sorry, sorry verse 7, therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. You think she's got a problem? She's weeping all the time, and she's not eating. It doesn't help that her rival is mocking her incessantly. And so enter husband, husband with two wives. Don't forget that. He walks in, and he says, Hannah, don't, don't be sad. Remember, notice in verse 4, remember that when we go to the temple, when I break open the goat, cut the goat open, and I give portions to all of Paniah's sons and daughters. So here's a portion, here's a portion, here's a portion, here's a portion. I mean, she was fertile myrtle. Here's a portion, here's a portion, here's a portion. To all the sons and daughters, Hannah, don't I give you two portions of the goats? Shouldn't that make you happy? Shouldn't that fix the problem? Why are you crying, woman? You got two portions of the goat. Rejoice and be glad. I'm a generous husband. I love you, and you got two parts of the goats. You get to pick which parts you get. It's a good day. Oh. Second attempt. Enter Elkanah again. Wife's weeping and crying. His other wife is hassling her. He tries to alleviate it. Oh, he's a moron. Okay. Verse 8, husbands don't ever say this. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? All great questions. Just stop there and listen to your wife. It's not what the husband says. Moron opens his mouth and says, Am I not more to you than ten sons? What do we got for him, Bob? Moron. What does he do? You've got me. In small group, I said, I wonder if he was like flexing during that time or doing something. Are you kidding me? She's crying. She's weeping. She's not eating. She's downtrodden. Her, her rival, his second wife, is mocking her for one reason. Not that she doesn't have a great husband. 
that she doesn't have a child. And Elkanah thinks he can fix that. Oh, a reminder for us when we walk and talk with people that are living lives of shattered expectations, don't ever think that your little words of advice can fix it. Let me tell you, early on in my ministry as a pastor, I had an answer for everything. Everything. Let me tell you, as now, as I grow older, and now in the second decade of my ministry, the best pastoral ministry I can do often is just to weep with people who weep. To look in people's eyes and say, I don't know why. Don't. I don't understand, Hannah, why you, a godly woman, a woman who would make a great mother, a faithful woman, why you don't have children, but that your rival who has, is just unscrupulous in every way, she's got a bevy of them all around her. I don't know why. I don't understand why bad things happen to seemingly good people. It doesn't fix it. We need to be careful in that. Notice there's a second thing I want to, to bring out. We need to be careful that in our attempts to try to fix things, it will many times, listen, involve foreign substances to cope with the pain. I'm going to stretch the text a little bit. We are told that Hannah goes in to the temple and she begins to pray. She prays silently, but she's pretty animated. So much that the priest Eli is watching her and sees that she's not saying anything, but she's incredibly animated while she's praying. Of course, she's weeping. She is uh, uh, filled with great, the scripture says in the text, filled with great vexation in verse 16. And she's speaking out of her anxiety, it says. And right away, Eli says, are you drunk, woman? Why would he think that she's drunk? Because that's what we do. It's what we did then, and it's what we do now when it comes to our expectations being shattered. We turn to a bottle. We turn to a drug. We turn to something that will make us feel a little better. We need to be very careful because Hannah reminds us, even in our times of great anxiety and great vexation, that turning to a bottle ain't it. She says, I'm not drunk. I'm broken hearted. And while she wasn't given to that, I, I know I'm speaking to a group of people that when expectations are shattered, we turn to other things. And so there are some, no doubt, that struggle with the issue of alcohol. Yes, even within a church, alcoholism is a problem. And some of you are turning to the spirits that is the spirits of liquor, to, 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 to drown out your sorrow because it makes you feel a little better. Some of you are dealing with, with illegal drugs. Some of you are putting a heavy dependence on prescribed drugs. i got to take my little pill because that's what, that's what makes me feel better. It's what allows me to cope with my shattered expectations that things didn't turn out the way I wanted to. So if I take my little pill, everything will be fine. And while there's a place for medication, please don't miss that in what I'm saying. If that is your savior, then you've got a problem. If that's what's making life be filled with joy, then you've got a problem. Some of you, some of us, do it in more Christian ways. We allow our minds to be filled with all kinds of fantasy of what life could be like. We covet others when we see their picture-perfect lives. We drown ourselves in television and in books, dreaming about what life could be like. For many, heartbreak and shattered expectations leave us wanting, and we go about trying to fill our lives <coughs> with other things to cope and alleviate the pain. And Hannah reminds us, you don't do it this way. So what do we do? We remain faithful even when it hurts. Hannah doesn't do any of that. She doesn't try to fix her problem on her own. She doesn't look to other things to try to alleviate the pain. So life isn't going the way you want it to. Maybe this morning you find yourself just 
You just feel like life isn't what it was meant to be. My grandfather used to say, and because my grandfather said it, I'm going to say it in church out of respect for him. Shattered expectations. Listen, this is from an old man who's now dead and gone. Shattered expectations is when you live life, living your life on the first floor of a two-story outhouse. You get that? It's not fun. It's not a place you want to be. It feels as if everything's not going your way. And so what does the Christian do? What is the Christian to do in those moments? Number one, write these down. I'm going to give you five, and we're going to close in prayer. Number one, in your moments of shattered expectation, you're not going to like the first one. Suffer hardship like a good soldier. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 says, Endure hardship like a good soldier. A soldier is given sometimes jobs, missions that they don't like. And their job isn't to quit. Their job isn't to give up and say, I don't want to do that. You can't make me. A soldier bucks up and says, okay, not the mission I was looking for, but I will endure that hardship because I've been called as a soldier to do so. And so here's the thing. Whatever we're dealing with, whatever trial or trouble or shattered expectation you have, before you go to trying to fix it, recognize that God may be giving you this struggle for you to suffer. Why in the world would a loving God want you to suffer? Because God knows that suffering brings us to our knees. Let me, let me tell you something. Every time of growth in my life has always started at a place of suffering. If I look back at the key moments of my 39 years on this world, in this earth, every moment that has been a moment where I look back and say life-changing, there's been a point of suffering in there. Every time. I'm going to be honest with you. If it hasn't involved suffering, it hasn't changed my life. And God knows that suffering works. And listen, we hate suffering as American Christians. People are going to get mad at me. I, I can't stand a lot of our Christian cinema movies. Because in every one of the Christian movies, everything finishes up great in the end. If you do this, you get the new truck. If you do this, you'll have babies. If you do that, this will happen. That will happen. My goodness, I want Jesus. Everything works out in the end. Well, let me tell you something. I read the Bible and not everything works out in the end. God says some of the best people in the world, the people that this world isn't worth knowing, are people who suffered greatly. And God uniquely gives us suffering experiences to become more like him. Let's remember who we worship and praise, a suffering servant, who we are called to share in his sufferings so that we may one day share in his resurrection and glory. Don't be so quick to alleviate the pain. We shared with our small group this uh, last week that we did not quickly tell a lot of people about Amanda's cancer earlier this year because we knew that the heart, heart um, the outpouring of, uh, of love that we would experience from our church and our family and friends would be in some ways something that we've never experienced in our lives. And I remember wanting that so bad, but also recognizing, asking, Lord, what, what do you want me to to suffer in this? What, what are you wanting us to learn in this? Before we go and announce it to everybody, what, what, what are you wanting to teach us in this? Before, before the, the clamor of all the love and support that people will give us, what do you have in this moment? I was reminded of this truth, and I know she's in here, and I know that it will bring up heartache, but I was reminded of this truth at Thomas Vitormus' funeral. And at one point, Jossa, rightly so, crying out because of the loss of her husband. I learned from a Hall of Fame Liberian pastor. Because ladies began to come around Jossa and console her. And, and the pastor said, stop. Let her cry out to the Lord. Because she is drawing closer to her Savior than she ever would in times of plenty. And we need to recognize this morning, don't be quick to push off your suffering. That in those moments... Those are the moments where God draws closest to us. 
God gives us tears. God gives us the ability to cry with all our lungs. Because he wants us at times to do that. A man after God's own heart did a lot of crying, David did. A lot of crying, a lot of times of anxiety and filled with vexation. Not pushing off the suffering, but taking it and being reminded of it. And that moves to the second one. You suffer hardship like a good soldier. Life isn't easy. And God may have have given you this job of suffering for a reason. Number two, be honest about your heartbreak. In verses 8, 10, and 15, we see Hannah being honest about her pain. She's broken in private. She's broken in front of her family. She's broken in front of strangers. And she's broken in places that, quote, unquote, you shouldn't be broken. In church. I mean, isn't that where you clean yourself up and go before the priest and say, I'm fine, you're fine, we're all fine. Isn't that what we do here in America? No, she's honest. Hannah, how's life going? It's terrible. I got no kids. Isn't that what a woman wants, is kids? I don't have it. I can't eat. I can't sleep. My husband's sleeping with another woman. She's having babies all over the place. Let's just be real about it. How are you doing? Be honest about your heartbreak. Yes, use wisdom. Use integrity in your speech. But but be honest about it. How's life going? It's terrible. I'm in a dead-end job. My boss hates me. I can't ever make him happy. My kids, they're not living for the Lord. They want nothing to do with their mom and I. I got problems. I got no money. I got nothing. Man, I was hoping life would be a lot better, and it's terrible right now. Be honest about your heartbreak. God wants to hear it, and quite frankly, other Christians should desire it as well. Number three, leave it and let God work it out. In verse 18, we are told that she makes her petition before the Lord. And after she had heard from the priest, she left it in God's hand, and she no longer was downcast or downtrodden. She, was, she cleaned up her face, got back to what she was supposed to be doing, never brought it up again. It was in the Lord's hands. And some of you this morning need to stop and say, you know what, God, I, you, you need to know about this heartache. I know you know it, but I want to I verbalize it to you. I'm struggling here. I'm going to put it in your hands. I don't know what you're going to do with it, but, but I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to let you work it out. Leave it and let God work it out. Next, see God's sovereignty amidst the storm. Who's to blame for all of this? Hannah? Nope. Elkanah? Nope. Benaiah? Nope. God. Twice in this passage, we see that the one who is to blame for this trial and tribulation is God. Listen, the Lord closed her womb. Who did it? The Lord. You don't think the Lord could 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 fix her problem? Yeah, he could have. The moment she she had the first month of not having a baby, God could have taken care of it. But he doesn't. And God's got a plan. And God's sovereign. And so maybe this morning you're sitting there going, I don't get it. Why is this happening to you? Because maybe God in his infinite judgment and wisdom has said, you know what? It is good for my child to endure this. Maybe for a season, maybe for some years, or maybe for their entire life. And God has the ability God has the right to do that in our lives. But here's what I want you to remember. In those moments, God will feel very, very far from you. But look at verses 1 and 2. There was a certain man, and I'm not going to go through all the names, but he's from the hill country of Ephraim, and and his name is Elkanah, and his dad was so-and-so, and and his great-dad was so-and-so, and and his great-great-grandfather was so-and-so, and and his great-great-grandfather was so-and-so. And and, and he knows who he is and what he's doing. Let me tell you something. If you don't think God knows your hurts and God doesn't know your pains, God knows you. He knows the amount of hairs on your head. He knows everything about you. He knows when you get up and when you go to bed. He knows your struggles. He knows your pains. He knows your anxieties. And God is there. And God reminds us he will never leave us nor forsake us. And so we need to recognize that we've got a sovereign God that, yes, he allows things in our lives. He puts things in our lives for our good. And here's the thing. It may look like chaos. 
I had a, an aunt who used to do needlepoint, and, and she would make those beautiful pictures as she would go through. And one thing, I always was sitting on the ground. I'd say, what are you doing? She says, I'm making a picture. I said, it looks pretty junky down here because I was looking at the bottom side. All the frayed edges, all of the, the mess. And, and sometimes God's doing this picture, this needlepoint picture. And from earth's perspective, we look up and it's all frayed and it's all messed up. And we're like, man, what are you doing? And God says, you're not looking at it from my perspective. See God's sovereignty. Finally, trust his lordship no matter how it turns out. I cannot, listen to me, I will not be the Christian movie for you. Your life may not turn out any better than it is today. Your husband or wife may never change. Your children may wander far from God. Your job, you may die in that dead-end job. You may never have money. Your cancer may never go away. Whatever it is, let me tell you something. Your life may be the same 10 years from now as it is today. And here's the thing. Trust the Lord. Trust him. Trust that he does all things well. Trust him when your rivals mock you. Trust when, when people hurt you with great blows of pain. Trust God and endure the hardship that may come your way even as a child of his. Knowing that he loves you, that he is with you, and that he will see you through to the end. Trust him and obey him with all your life. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and I thank you for your, your uh, leading us to this passage and, and to what it teaches us. And I pray for every individual here that's struggling with these expectations, these struggles, these issues. Life is frustrating, Lord, and we recognize that and we recognize that that frustration should just should throw us to you. So Lord, I pray this week that we would not look at our circumstances with such a big lens but to look at you and your sovereignty, your faithfulness, your goodness in so many other areas of our lives. That we would give these one or two areas in our life that, that are causing us such trouble and pain over to you. We would hand them over to you, knowing that you do all things well, knowing that, that you will address them in your own way and in your own time, as you did in Hannah's life. You gave her a son. And while we're not guaranteed that, Lord, we are guaranteed a freshness and a newness and an intimacy in our relationship with you when in our moments of struggle, we surrender ourselves to you. So wherever anyone may be struggling this morning, I pray that you would uh, impress upon them that you are drawing close to them and that they in turn should draw near to you. We love you and we praise you for it. Now send us away now, Lord, in the fellowship of your people as we talk and interact with one another. Remind us of these truths when we are apart so that we may honor you in all that we do. It is in Christ's name that we pray all these things. And all God's people said, amen.